It's a reading from 2 Kings chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Naaman healed of leprosy. Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl, girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood there before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again Make a burnt offering, make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. So in 1997, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck and Robin Williams starred in a fantastic film, uh, Oscar-winning film called Goodwill Hunting. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And I saw a, an interview with Matt Damon many decades after on the Graham Norton show. 
And Graham Norton commented on how young Matt was back then. Um, as you can see, he was only in his 20s when he won an Oscar. And a reflective Matt Damon reminisced on that eve of his Oscar win, and he said this. He said, I couldn't sleep. I was buzzing. But then I was alone looking at the award, and I remember thinking very, very clearly, imagine chasing that and not getting it, and then getting it finally in your 80s or 90s, with all of life behind you, and realising what an unbelievable waste of time it was. It can't fill you up. It will never fill you up. I felt so blessed to have this realisation. So this got me thinking, have I ever had this type of thing happen to me? Where I looked back on something I was chasing, something that I was living for, and uh, ultimately it was a disappointment. So I moved to this area in the tail end of year five, school year five, which is about 10 years old, and I went along to Moorlane Primary School in Chessington. And I had a pair of yellow and blue seeker trainers. They were navy blue with yellow soles and yellow accents all about. And uh, every single person at that school that I just joined thought they were tragic and they laughed at them. What you needed to fit in, I soon discovered, was a black pair of Reebok Classics. And those are the trainers that I then began to pine after. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to get my classmates' approval. And it was a powerful urge, I can tell you. Uh, I look back now and obviously realise that that wasn't really something to worry about. How many hours I would have spent plotting ways to persuade my parents to fork out 40 quid on a pair of trainers that I didn't know existed until five minutes ago? How many people from primary school do I even still know? Well, it's only a one or two or three. And a question that I'd like you to think about, perhaps a bit more of a difficult one, is um, could this be happening to you right now? In the same way Matt Damon saw the shallowness of chasing an Oscar for his whole life, could it be uh, the thing that you are chasing right now may ultimately disappoint you? Are you at risk of being disappointed by the thing you're living for? Now, I don't really like that question. It makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but it is a question that this passage raises and answers as well. So do be having a think about that in the back of your mind as we go through this story of Naaman. I've got three headings for you uh, to help us as we go through, which are prosperity, pride and pursuit. Uh, and then a couple of bits of application for us at the end. So first of all, we'll start with prosperity. As we've heard, Naaman was uber successful man in every kind of way. Career, wealth, he was at the top of his game. He had the approval of nations and he had possessions, he had military success. He was the type of person that when he spoke, people would listen. Verse 5, you can see, so Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 sets of clothing. This is a lot of money. There's a bit of speculation, um, I guess because trying to work out 3,000 years' worth of inflation is quite complicated. <laughs> but at the very least, it's multi-millions. And some go as far to say that it's equivalent to a third of the wealth of, the in of all of Israel. And uh, therefore, it couldn't have just been Naaman's money. It would have come from his king and from the government 
and from the people. Such was his value and popularity that Uncle Sam was footing the bill for his healing in no small measure. But again, for all these positive things we hear about Naaman, despite being a great man, he has leprosy. Leprosy is the skin condition to which there is no cure. It would start small, a spot on his body, verse 11, uh, but once it came into full development, it would become infectious. And no matter who you were, eventually you would be an outsider. It wouldn't matter that you were Naaman, of such popularity and wealth and success. His life was like a ticking time bomb, waiting for him to be cast out and segregated. A reject of society, expected to live outside the city with other lepers, not allowed to go near anyone else. Goodbye job, goodbye family, goodbye everything. And I, I do try and imagine that situation. Imagine knowing that everything you've been working for would be taken away at, at some point in the future. This disease you have, before it kills you, it's going to take everything from you. Once an insider, soon to be an outsider. I'm sure if you're anything like me, uh, you do want to be an insider to some degree, whether it means popular or successful or respected or funny. Why is it that social media is such a popular craze? Because it taps into this inner desire of ours to be seen in the Reebok classics. I came off of social media a little while ago and now I've got to watch myself that I don't start to think, oh, I'm above all that now. I'm not one of those people that wants to show how good their life is. I've got to be careful because being a non-social media user is just another club to be in a different type of public image that I want everybody known. Naaman is clearly into his career and reputation, and I'm, what I'm trying to say about us is even if we're not relying on career specifically, we'll be relying on something. And this is the first problem for Naaman. All of his wealth and popularity, um, all of his no doubt hard work, will not be able to save his situation. And for us too, Whatever prosperity we may have, this passage should cause us to think um, that one day when trouble comes, we're going to need a bit more. Naaman's biggest problem, however, isn't leprosy, but pride. Pride. Naaman hears uh, of Elisha and the potential for healing from the uh, slave girl in verse 3, and he heads off. First he goes uh, to his own king to get a permission slip, a note of endorsement, um, such was his prominence, as well as an absolute fortune. Then he doesn't even go straight to Elisha, but to their king. Uh, Naaman is so important, he goes straight again, straight to the top man. And to the fact that he can even get an audience with a king, again reiterates this status of his. The king of Israel knows he can't do anything, uh, about Naaman's leprosy, so he sends him on his way to Elisha. And Naaman is dealt with quite interestingly at this point, and hopefully it provides a little bit of insight for us about how God will deal with us too. We know that through Elisha, God is going to heal Naaman and take away his leprosy. So why do we have all this rigmarole of seven dips in the Jordan? Why does Elisha anger Naaman by um, not coming to meet him at the start? Why doesn't he take his money? Why doesn't um, he come out to greet him? 
And why doesn't the story go, Naaman saw Elisha and he was healed? It's because Naaman not only has leprosy of his skin, but a helpful phrase I've come across is he had leprosy of his heart too. He suffers with pride. And this is one of the main teachings of uh, the whole Bible, really, that whatever our problems are in the world, physical or emotional struggles, this doesn't compare with our spiritual problems. And please uh, don't mishear me. I'm not, of course, not playing down physical and emotional problems. And neither is this this passage, because leprosy was a serious and terrible thing to have. But God is not simply satisfied to rid him of that problem and call it a day. And Jesus demonstrates this time and time again in the New Testament. God is after Naaman's heart. Verse 11, Naaman storms off in a huff. He's spoken to his own king. He's got the wealth of the nation behind him. He goes to Israel's king and he then goes off to Elisha with all his entourage and his chariots and so on. And Elisha doesn't even come to the door. If it wasn't for the fact that uh, God is trying to teach Naaman some humility, I'd think Elisha is just being an absolute joker. It seems like he can't be bothered to come and see him. He doesn't care who he is. And all he does is send out uh, a servant, a messenger for him. And then the instruction, as we've heard, simply dip in and out of the water seven times. Something absolutely anybody could do prince or pauper and Naaman's reaction reveals his heart the prophet doesn't even come to speak to me he thinks and then he tells me to do something trivial it can't be right let me pay or earn it some way there's no such thing as a freebie surely and he's so proud that even after coming all this way he's ready to up and leave he thinks no I'm not willing to do this I'd rather stay ill For Naaman, it seems, when faced with a possibility uh, that all he's worked for doesn't have any bearing on him, uh, this, uh, any bearing on him being saved, this sparks his anger and it touches a nerve and it infuriates him. Verse 11, but Naaman went away angry, verse 12, so he turned and went off in a rage. It's not in the passage, but perhaps he was muttering, doesn't he know who I am? Naaman would have bolted if it wasn't for his, uh, that servant's persuasive words. Verse 13. My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? This unnamed slave girl that we first see in uh, verse 3 is really the hero of the story. She's a picture of Christ's heart. Taken from her home by Naaman, effectively. Her parents were likely killed and now she's forced to serve the the family of the perpetrator. Estimated to be 14 or younger, she surely would have been sad, lonely, traumatised, yet somehow she longs for Naaman to be healed. If Vladimir Putin had leprosy, it would be like a Ukrainian prisoner striving to find him the cure. Her heart mirrors the heart of God. How similar that heart is to Jesus our Saviour, who was separated from his Father also, who came to serve those he had created when they should be serving him. Whilst they declared himself his enemies, whilst they abandoned him to die, 
whilst they forsook him and thought only of themselves, he lovingly served them and put their needs above his own and sought what was best for them at tremendous cost and loss. Thanks to her, Naaman gives it a go. The pride of his heart is momentarily put aside and he complies and he is healed. The leprosy is gone and it dawns on Naaman. All of his success counts for nothing. This gift, the ease of washing in the Jordan, so easy that anyone can do it, this gift of healing was free, freely given, and he didn't have to do anything spectacular to achieve it. He could list his achievements all day long, but all he had to do was humble himself and do the simplest of tasks. The only thing Naaman had to fight against was his own pride. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this about pride. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud person is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Naaman's pride was uh, subdued, and verse 15, he realises that there is one true God. I hope that you can see that God is a God of pursuit. Through Elisha, and most powerfully through the young servant girl, God pursues Naaman and goes after his heart. He knows of his leprosy of the skin, but also longs to help him with the leprosy of his heart. God uses this incident in Naaman's life to break down the pride and self-reliance that keeps him from God and keeps him from looking up, as Lewis would say. God is not satisfied to simply solve his physical problem and leave him in spiritual peril. God sends Elisha and the servant girl to persuade him to humble himself. The servant girl through her kindness and through her kind words and Elisha through his cold shoulder. And when the penny drops and he realises uh, that grace is free, it brings him around. God sought out Naaman and that very same God seeks you as well. The Bible claims that we all have sinful hearts. We all have fallen short and our hearts by default are self-serving and rebellious and full of pride. Sin which the, the kiddie explanation is best, S-I-N, Shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rules. So what is um, your gut reaction to a call of repentance? And I'll tell you how it is for me, is I don't really like it. I don't like the idea of giving up my independence, of uh, giving up self-sufficiency and ad admitting that I am weak and uh, that I'm sinful. And then I've got to ask myself, am I just like Naaman? whose gut reaction to a free gift is outrage and frustration. In the Marvel films, a guy called Doctor Strange looks into multiple futures and tells Tony Stark that out of 10 million uh, possible future outcomes, there's only one that results in the universe being saved from destruction. And it later transpires the only way was for Tony to sacrifice himself to save the world. And this isn't an original film idea. The God of the Bible, the all-knowing creator, knows there's only one way to save humanity. And it was for Jesus to sacrifice himself in our place. Jesus paid it all. The ultimate price 
to buy our freedom and to make it possible for us to enter heaven and have eternal life with no pain, with no tears or death or sadness, where we will be his people and he will be our God. He promises endless celebration, living forever in perfect unity with him and with each other. And there we, we, uh, we will experience the unsurpassable joy of knowing and dwelling with our God. And the Bible says to get this, just repent and believe. Repent of your default rebellion and believe in his free gift of salvation. And then you will know, as Naaman did, the one true and living God. And you will consider it the best thing you've ever done, uh, that you ever did. Your whole life will become about that relationship. To uh, finish off, I've got a couple of applications for us to think about. Uh, Three if you're a Christian, and three if you're not a Christian. So if you're a Christian, first of all, how do you, uh, what do you think about Naaman's reaction uh, towards his money? As we spoke about earlier, Naaman comes to Israel with all this money, and it's not just a sign of his wealth, but a sign of his status and success as well. A sign of his popularity amongst his own nation. The danger for us too, I think, is that we can use money as a tool like this. It allows for holidays and houses and gadgets and motorbikes and minis. But after Naaman is healed and has this encounter with God, his attitude does change. He seems to be radically generous, doesn't he? He's already had the healing. He's already had the healing in verse 16, and then he's still trying to give the money away, even though he, he's already got what he came for. Why does he do this? Because it's just money now. He can be generous, and he can give it away because his status is no longer tied up with it. What he's worried about now is how he's going to uh, live for God in his own culture. And his money, it's, it's just money. A uh, second thing for you is, how Naaman acts in public with his newfound faith, how he is uh, in the world but not of the world. Does he leave his life and join Israel, abandon his friends and take the easier seeming choice of joining that Christian bubble with like-minded people? Or does he go back to work, his workplace, and hide his faith away, keeping it private because he's just a private man? It's neither. He starts to work out how this is going to affect his everyday life. How is he going to fulfill his duty and keep his job and keep his friends and so forth and yet be distinctive? He speaks in verse 17 about taking soil with him uh, to kneel on so that when he's um, helping his king and doing his job, everyone else around there would know that he's not worshipping a false god. It would be a clear outward sign to those around him that whilst he fulfilled his job and his duty, he's not following an idolatrous God. Elisha considers what he says and to summarise says, yet that seems like it will work, go in peace. So how uh, are we living our Christian lives in the public space amongst our work colleagues and family and our friends? Are we distinctive like like Naaman is trying to be? Are we there, but still true to God? And uh, are we purposeful with our 
behavior and our decisions. And thirdly, um, the behavior of this nameless servant girl is uh, one to give some thought to. She's been taken from her home, as I said, most likely seen her family killed, but we don't know that for sure, and forced to serve the son at the family of the man responsible. She would be well within her rights, don't you think, to hate Naaman? And uh, have you ever uttered the phrase, I can't stand them? I can't stand him, I can't stand her. Out loud or in your head? Well, again, if like me, the answer to that is yes, you should be troubled by that heart attitude. This wonderful woman shows us a real life outworking of a gospel heart. Is it not true that Jesus had every right to say to us, let them reap what they sow? But he doesn't. His heart uh, goes out to us once his enemies. It goes as far as death on a cross. And how can I come to that God in thankfulness and yet silently mutter how there's someone over there that I can't stand? And if you're not a Christian here today, there's three things I'd like you to think about as well. Does your heart resist what this passage is teaching? Have there been parts of the service uh, where you thought to yourself, I don't really like what I'm hearing. It's a little bit offensive even. You're telling me the message of the Bible is that I am sinful and all my good works count for nothing. Of all the people out there, I'm not even that bad. I'm quite good, good moral standing, better than many, that's for sure. Uh, Have you ever thought something like, if more people were like me, the world would be a better place? (laughs) Maybe the world is a bit grandiose, but certainly if more people were like me, the workplace would be a better place. And that is a kind of a first sign of a bit of pride, really. It's at odds with what the Bible says. It says that we cannot come close to being good enough to get into heaven. Um, The only way to do it is through Jesus' gift. That is the only way. And if you feel resistance to that in your heart, in a way, in a way, it is a good sign because it means you are understanding at least what the Bible is telling you and what the Christian message is. And if I could be bold enough to push back a little bit on that reaction, isn't it frustrating to have that reaction described exactly in this passage? To be a textbook Naaman, a textbook reaction. Maybe it is that The Bible is a completely accurate book on the human condition and it really can give you some answers and tell you more about yourself than you'd work out on your own. Secondly, for for you if you're not a Christian today, are you happy with your life or are you going to suffer the the Matt Damon problem? This is a lot harder to address to, to a group because some of you may be feeling disappointment, some of you may be feeling contentment. Um... You may feel disappointed with your relationships or your career or your health or just how things have turned out for you. What I wanted you to consider at the start was uh, maybe the thing you live for will let you down eventually if it hasn't already. And again, the overall message of the Bible uh, and of the Christian faith is that nothing will be able to satisfy you other than the Lord God. We are human beings made by God for God and he is the only source of true joy and contentment 
There are many Christians here today, and they will all say that turning to Christ is the most significant thing they have ever done. That's a testimony of many people here today. And if you speak to a Christian, I think if you ask them about what happened, at minimum you will find uh, their testimony thought-provoking. And thirdly, why are you here? How did you get here? Is God not in pursuit of you? Is he not going after your heart because he is desperate for you to have a full and eternal life? He's desperate and he's pursuing you. Somehow you've been brought to our little church community where we read the Bible and we talk endlessly about what God has done. Could it be that God brought the person that invited you or whatever circumstances brought you here, could it be that God is after you and that he's pursuing you? We already know that he's done the headline act, which is sending his son to die on the cross in our place and to offer for free reconciliation and eternal life. And the last bit of the mission is to get you to accept it. Like Naaman, God is after your heart's affections. He he wants you to accept him. He wants me to accept him in his heart. And for us, it's free. And I think this is why Elisha refuses the money. Elisha could have potentially been the richest man in Israel after this encounter. But he said no. Why? Was it because Naaman is famous and lots of people would hear about this story? And even today, we're hearing about it. And we're to be in no doubt, no onlooker was to have any doubt, no modern day reader was to have any doubt that God's salvation is free. God pursues us. God wants me and he wants you. And why not accept his gift and experience the incomparable riches of his grace and get to know, as Naaman did, the one true God.